This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. When the pandemic initially hit, there was a run on grocery stores and we all experienced the shortage of toilet paper, but uh, there was also a shortage of meat and produce. The problem wasn't as acute uh, here locally as it was in other parts of the country, but you could see images and various news outlets of empty shelves that were once lined with meat and potatoes. Um, but there was one thing grocery stores had plenty of, and that was candy. Uh, the candy aisle was chocked full of Kit Kats and, and M&Ms, but there were no meat and potatoes. And I found that to be a curious thing, an interesting thing. Uh, in a time of crisis, in a time of suffering, people go for what they need most, not necessarily what they like most. And uh, I think when we look at that, there's a lesson for our faith journey here. The temptation in the church is to uh, draw crowds by serving up sweets. Uh, The temptation inside the church is also one where we're tempted to just snack on sweets, Uh, just give people what they like. But (laughs) in a global pandemic with disruption and distancing and isolation, um, no one who ran to the store was thinking about sweets. They were thinking about sustenance. This summer, we're venturing into a sermon series entitled Theological Boot Camp. It will be every bit as challenging as it sounds. It's meat and potatoes Christianity, and our goal is to infuse into your spiritual diet something substantive that will help you get through the next trial and the one after that and the one after that, because if we live long enough, there will be many, many more to face. Today's topic is the revelation of God. Very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God. Now, often when we read the Bible, we skip the noun and we move to the verb. That is, we we skip over the character and we move immediately to the action the character is performing, and that is creating. But let's not do that. Let's stop first with the character. In the beginning, God. Pause. Who is this character? Where did this character come from? What is this character like? What is this character up to? What does this character have to do with me? When we ask questions like this, we're asking questions of revelation. Not uh, end times book of revelation type stuff. No, we're, we're starting from a more fundamental place. We want God to disclose himself, to reveal himself. This is what we mean by revelation. Revelation of God is God revealing who he is, what he's done, what he's like, what his plans are, what his purposes are, what he wants from you, and for you. And these are intensely practical matters. 
Now, when it comes to the revelation of God, many of us are familiar with um, just this much of it. Take a look at this picture. You take a look at that. Um, what would you do? What would you say? Uh, what would you think? Would you feel in light of what you see? Now, I wouldn't show you this picture. You take a look at it. And you say, if you were embedded in it, would you know what to do? Would you know how to respond? What would you say? Well, the fact of the matter is you don't have enough of the picture to know exactly how you should respond. If you had more of the revelation impressed upon you, you would see this. Take a look at it. Now you've got a better idea of what you're supposed to do, of what you're supposed to think, of what you're supposed to feel. This is why God's revelation of himself is so critical. It matters on a very practical level what he's revealed about himself, what he's revealed about the world, what he's revealed about us. Now, a, a, a secondary question to this is, can humankind find God? That really is, in fact, the wrong question. Because humankind cannot find God. Unless, of course, God reveals himself to humankind. See, the story of the Bible is not a story of man's search for God. It's a story about God's search for man. And it started in the Garden of Eden, when God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, our default position, the posture we're born with, is the one Adam and Eve exemplified in the garden once they sinned. They hid from God. That's our default posture. That, when we're born into the world, that is the thing we naturally do. We run and we hide. We do not, by nature, search for God. This is why God has gone to extraordinary measures to reveal himself. So in the final analysis, it's not wrong to say God is unknowable unless he takes the initiative to make himself known. This is meat and potatoes Christianity. This is the topic we're taking up today, the revelation of God. So to get a firmer grip on this, we'll be doing a deep dive into Psalm 19. Psalm 19. If you have your Bibles, please open those. If you've got a smartphone or tablet in front of you, get it open. Psalm 19. You're going you're gonna to want to have these verses in front of you. We're going to take a, a walk through them. And then uh, I'll highlight um, some reflections at the end. Psalm 19. And we're going to take a journey through them. C.S. Lewis, in his little book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms, which if you don't have that book, it would be a good one to get. Uh, really important work, Reflections on the Psalms. Uh, Lewis in that book says this about Psalm 19. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. That's high praise. Let's take a look. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, poetry contains parallelism, which means one line of poetry will either repeat the sentiment in the previous line using different language or further expound the meaning of the previous line or offer a contrasting thought. That'll be important to keep in mind as we work our way through this psalm. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, says David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, the NIV translation of the word skies obscures the fact that this is actually a reference back to Genesis 1. Uh, The word firmament would be better here, heavens and firmament. firmament. They form what's called a mirrorism in Hebrew poetry. A mirrorism is a combination of two contrasting words to refer to an entirety. As an example of that, we searched high and low for the missing ring. It's a mirrorism, two contrasting words that refer to an entirety. In the beginning, Genesis 1 says, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a mirrorism. It's a summary statement indicating that God created everything. And it declares the glory of God. The verbs declare and proclaim make explicit what nature does. It makes evident the glory of God. So in creation, God went public with his glory. So if you pause there just for a minute, you realize that glory is something God already had. He already had glory before he created. But in creation, he went public with it. So so nature doesn't just... Nature doesn't just establish the mere existence of God. It declares the glory of God. It declares the glory of God. Now, the word glory is one of the richest, deepest, most sophisticated terms in all of the Bible. Um, It is incredibly difficult to... um, convey a good definition of it, which is why we're going to have an entire message on it next week. A summary of it would go like this. In the original language, the word for glory is kavod, which it means weight. It means heavy. So when we say that God is glorious, we're actually saying God is weighty. He's heavy. Or to put it in slightly different semantic categories, he's consequential. He's important. He's significant. He's unignorable. One pastor describes God's glory as his infinite beyondness. So to try to convey a picture of this, use your imagination for a minute. Imagine dropping a feather from a hundred feet up onto some dirt. What would the feather do to the dirt? Now imagine dropping a 10 ton boulder from a hundred feet up onto some dirt. What would that do to the dirt? One is earth shattering, the other is not. One is weighty, the other is not. One is glorious, the other is not. Frequently in the Bible, when God's glory falls, things change. Things change and they change dramatically. We'll look more closely at that next week. So when the psalmist says, creation declares and proclaims the glory of God, it is saying something much more than God exists. It is saying God is significant, someone to be reckoned with, someone to be taken seriously. Verse two, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. These verses are so amazingly nuanced. Uh, I stared at them for the better part of an hour when I was digging into this psalm. On the one hand, creation pours forth speech. 
On the other hand, it has no speech. On the one hand, no sound is heard from creation. But on the other hand, its voice goes out into all the earth. On the one hand, they use no words. But on the other hand, their words go to the ends of the earth. (laughs) In other words, creation utters wordless words and speechless speech. And there is such a thing as this. There is such a thing as nonverbal communication. You and your spouse get very good at this. Now, whether or not you enjoy that type of communication with your spouse is an entirely different matter. So the psalmist is saying, just like the, just like the irrepressible bubbling up of a spring, of a natural spring, creation through wordless testimony bears witness to the heaviness of God, the weightiness of God, the consequentiality of God. In creation, God is pervasively communicating with all humanity. And we see that in the next section of verses. Look at the second half of verse four. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So the psalmist makes a slight shift and puts the spotlight on one specific element in creation, the sun. Uh, Notice in the verses, the, uh, the psalmist using mixed metaphors, using mixed metaphors. The psalmist first compares the sun to a groom and then to a mighty man running a race. And the, sh- the shifting metaphors make gradual progress from residing in a tent to departing from the chamber to running a course and finally to the sun's trip through the whole circuit of the heavens. The, the triumphant sweep of the sun through the heavens displays the glory of God. And the first metaphor is uh, it's this, uh, this, this uh, reference to a groom. Um, the, the Jewish world, when, when weddings took place, there was a triumphant procession the groom would engage in as he walked from his home to the home of his bride. It was an incredibly public spectacle. This actually has been captured in um, motion picture um, renderings of Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, it was a very public um, ceremony visible to the entire town, to the entire village. Uh, because the whole village, the whole town would be involved in this. And, and the psalmist, by using that imagery, is celebrating and, and emphasizing the impossibility of missing the event. Or by parallel, the impossibility of missing the revelation of God in creation. Now, in that particular wedding imagery, as the groom makes his march to his bride's house... Not to be present at such an event would require either intentional indifference or active enmity toward the family of the groom. So God in creation is making himself known to all on that kind of scale of of joy and glory. 
Then the psalmist switches metaphors. That's the groom metaphor. Switches metaphors to referring to uh, a champion. The word for champion is most often used in the Hebrew Bible as a reference to a warrior, which makes the, the metaphor edgier than simply a runner running a race. Keep in mind the Hebrews were a warrior people many of whom possessed a fearless indifference to personal safety and um, in, enjoyed finally engaging in the battle. And that itself was a sign of a great warrior. Now, what makes this warrior imagery even more likely is the mention of warmth or more specifically heat. So the underlying Hebrew word can mean both heat and warmth or in many instances, rage or anger, including that of God's judgment. So the sun then with, think of it as the sun having a constant scrutiny over human activity from its position in the heavens, not only provides welcome warmth, but also represents the possibility of divine judgment. So if, if, if creation declares the glory of God, if, if creation declares the soundless testimony of God, if the obviousness and scrutiny of God is portrayed through creation, then the natural next question is, does God have something more specific to say? Or or put it differently, does God have expectations of me? What, What is this God trying to communicate? And we get that progression starting in verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So David now shifts to ruminating on another source of God's revelation of himself. The first set of verses is, is David contemplating God's revelation of himself in creation, in nature. But he also reveals himself through the scriptures, through words. Now, David uses five nouns that are more or less synonyms for the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles open, take a look at this, this part of it, because I'm going to show you some of the parallelism that, that's, that's happening here. Five nouns that are synonyms for the Old Testament. Law, statutes, precepts, commands, and decrees. Each of these nouns possess uh, an accompanying adjective describing the character of the scripture. And also, with the exception of the last one, a verbal phrase revealing how they impact the life of the believer. So again, take a look at it. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts are right, giving joy. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light. The decrees of the Lord are firm. And this is where there's a slight change and righteous or sure. So the scriptures are perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, sure, righteous. And that can't be said of any other piece of literature, whether it's a book or an article online. 
Now, the compounding descriptors of God's word are, are powerful. David is not annoying us with little jabs, but he's throwing haymakers one after another. The scriptures are perfect. The word means whole, complete, without blemish, lacking nothing. The scriptures are trustworthy. They can be trusted to form the firm foundation of human life, providing sure guidance in the way that our Lord knows and blesses. The scriptures are right. They are an impeccable roadmap providing the way to faithful living before the holy scrutiny of God. The scriptures are radiant. They give light to our eyes to see life and spiritual reality as it is. The scriptures are sure and altogether righteous. They reveal God's just demands and show us what God wants. One haymaker after another. And then notice what the scriptures accomplish. Look at the verbal phrases. They revive the soul. <laughs> Does your soul feel numb? Is it in a state of disrepair? Now there's more than a hint in here of what could be done about that. Now the word for revive, interestingly enough, shuv, can also mean return. That's the language of repentance in the Old Testament. So it could mean that the scriptures are a vehicle for bringing about repentance and confession of faith. They make wise the simple. Now here the, here the psalmist isn't talking about those who are mentally challenged. Uh, that's not the reference. This is a reference to youths, youths who are still uh, so inexperienced and untutored in the options of life that it leaves them confused and in danger of making destructive choices. These, these are, uh, people who are, they're not rebellious, but they're fools. They're, they're well-intended people, but they don't possess uh, enough sufficient life experience to make great decisions. So for people earnestly seeking guidance, the scriptures serve to make them wise. The scriptures give joy to the heart. Now notice um, the, adject the adjective that this verbal phrase is paired with, the precepts of the Lord are right. That is, the scriptures are an impeccable roadmap for faithful living before God. And this is the key to joy. <laughs> Notice how they're paired with one another. The, the roadmap for joy is faithful living before God. That's the route to joy. Now, do we typically connect those two? Do we typically connect that faithful living before the Lord, that is scrupulous obedience to the word of God, is the route to joy? The scriptures give light to the eyes. Now, the concept of giving light to the eyes carries a twofold connotation. On the one hand, the scriptures help us see life from God's perspective, but they also enliven life. The scriptures are firm, sure, and righteous, revealing to us what should happen or ought to happen. We'll make further mention of the scriptures in a minute. Look at verse 10. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Commenting on this Old Testament scholar, Gerald Wilson writes this. He says, surely a divine given Torah, such as the psalmist describes in these verses, 
a Torah that is whole and complete, that is reliable and trustworthy, that provides undeviating guidance to life, and that is consistent and altogether righteous in its demands, is a precious resource for humans who are struggling to know how to live appropriately in a difficult world. Thus, the psalmist heaps up praise for the value of God's Torah in terms of precious metals and gourmet delectables of the day. It's harder to get higher praise than to to, um, say the scriptures are like gold. Uh, Difficult to underestimate the value and certainly would imply a passionate pursuit. The mention of honey adds another layer of meaning. The scriptures are, are not only of inestimable value and worthy of vigorous pursuit, but they're also tasty and pleasing to the senses. Verse 12, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in these verses, we get to the human response to all of this. Uh, or, or better said, what is God's intended response from us in light of what he's just told us about himself? How does God want us to respond to the revelation of himself in nature and scripture? So God's revelation of himself sparks profound impact on the life ready to receive that revelation. Look at the phrase, but who can discern their own errors? Now think for a moment about the implications of this question. It really is striking. Who can discern their own errors? What the psalmist is saying is that we are not self-aware. We don't know ourselves to the bottom. We are so riddled with sin, we are blind to some of them. And it's not that these errors are too small to see. They are simply too endemic to register. So we we sin in ways that never show up on our radars. So the psalmist in the text pleads for mercy and forgiveness. In fact, the main themes of verses 12 through 14 as a response to God's revelation of himself can be disseminated down to two ideas, repentance and consecration. Repentance. I repent of my sins and I pray to live a life of blamelessness, pleasing to the Lord. In other words, God reveals himself in order to get a response from us. Now that's our walk through uh, this Psalm. I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at, at three points. We're going to drill down a little bit deeper into some of these three points. We're going to look at the eloquence of nature, the necessity of scripture and the sweetness of Jesus. The eloquence of nature, the necessity of scripture and the sweetness of Jesus. First, the eloquence of nature, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, galaxies, mountain ranges, oceans, deserts, meadows are God's 
pervasive, uninterrupted revelation of his glory. So specific is God's revelation of himself in nature. The apostle Paul is able to say this in Romans one, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Since God's revelation of himself through creation gets into every nook and cranny of our human existence, all human beings are without excuse when it comes to what may be known about the power and divinity of God. In fact, Paul is saying to miss the power and divinity of God revealed in creation is our problem, not God's. John Newton, who is, um, was a former slave trader turned pastor um, and uh, known best for his writing of Amazing Grace. He was once asked about how to build a personal library. And, uh, and he was asked, what, what books do you recommend? He's writing in the 1800s. Um, and so he responds to this uh, inquiry, writes a letter back to the individual. And, and his answer is a bit surprising on how to build a personal library. He says, after, after commending the first volume in one's library be a Bible, he said the second volume ought to be, quote, the book of creation, end quote. Here's what he says. Nor can we cast our eyes anywhere without meeting innumerable proofs of his wisdom, power, goodness, and presence. God is revealed in the least as well as the greatest of his works, the sun and the glowworm, the fabric of the universe and each single blade of grass are equally the effects of divine power. A little bit later, he says, almost every object believers see when they are in the right frame of mind, either leads their thoughts to Jesus or tends to illustrate some scriptural truth or promise. In recommending the book of creation be the second volume in one's library, Newton is making a rather obvious connection. Next to scripture, creation is the next best thing to study to know the Lord. This is why down through the centuries, it's common to find theologians, pastors, serious students of scripture, taking up hobbies that allow them to study aspects of creation. And if you want an action item from this message, this may be it. Develop a hobby that forces you to study some aspect of God's revelation of himself in creation. Jonathan Edwards was an avid horseback rider simply because it got him out into the woods where he could observe nature. John Stott was an amateur ornithologist. He loved birds. He studied birds. Many of you garden. If you do, you're halfway there. As you observe plant life, what Scriptural truths or promises are being illustrated before your very eyes. 
But it's not just creation that bears witness to the existence of God. The text explicitly says more. Creation declares the glory of God. Creation doesn't just establish the existence of God. It declares the glory of God, the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, the unignorability of God, the infinite beyondness of God, the glory of God, not just the fact of God. How so? Take a look at this picture. This was taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. The, the splotches of light that you see are not planets. They're entire galaxies. And just as a reminder, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. To put <laughs> just one splotch is an entire galaxy. One little splotch of light is an entire galaxy. Now put this in perspective. If by some miracle, your favorite commercial airliner could fly you from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other, okay? From one end of the little splotch of light to the other, it would take you about 137 million years to do that. Okay? That's flying commercial from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other. There are billions of galaxies flying from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other 137 million years. And as far as we know, our tiny little planet Earth is the only one that has life on it. What does that reveal about the glory of God? Well, two things jump out at me. God's care for and love for human beings is special. That he would carve out a tiny little place, a microscopic little place, in a universe as vast as ours for us to live and move and have our being is incredible. But secondly, this tells me something about how small and insignificant we are compared to the glory of God. Keep in mind, the universe is declaring the glory of God. My glory cannot compare with God's glory. Your glory cannot compare with God's glory. We are microscopic specks in a universe that God just spoke into existence. And we ought to feel so small. We could sit on the edge of a diamond, our feet would dangle. This is what David led David to say in a different Psalm. When I consider your heavens, soulmate, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Creation declares and proclaims the heaviness, weightiness, consequentiality, unignorability, infinite beyondness of God. Now, even though God reveals himself through creation, there is a degree of insufficiency with it because God determined to reveal himself further through words, the scriptures. God determined that he would need something more than nature. So he gives us words. So let's look at the necessity of scripture. I could say a lot about this, but I'm going to boil it down to two ideas. We're going to look at the perfection of scripture and the power of of scripture, the perfection of scripture and the power of scripture. First, the perfection of scripture. Uh, the scriptures are perfect, trustworthy, and sure. These are incredibly strong adjectives in the text. Now the word for right in there is more important than it looks because it, it literally means a straight edge. What is a straight edge? What is a straight edge? A straight edge is a thing by which you measure other things. Now the long and short of it is you never determine whether scripture is true or right by using some other standard. 
Rather, you judge all other standards by the scriptures. Then in verse 9, David describes the scriptures saying, all of them are righteous. That is to say, every verse in the scriptures is equally sure, equally perfect, equally trustworthy. It's not that some of them are truer than others, or some of them are true and the others we just move past. The perfection of scripture is stated in incredibly astounding and uh, categorical ways. That's the perfection of scripture. Second, the power of scripture. To find the power of it, look at the verbal phrases in all these lines. Some of the things that David says about the power of scripture um, are astounding. Let me show you three of them. The first is, the first verbal phrase is reviving the soul. Derek Kidner, who's a a very good commentator, says the word soul here uh, has in Hebrew the nuance of psyche, that is yourself. He says the best way to translate this is the scripture has the power to show you who you really are. The scripture has the power to restore your true identity. The, The term revive obviously means there's something wrong with your identity. You're out of touch with who you are. You're not alert to who you are. Now this, this claim is amazing. The scripture, in other words, can wake you up and form you into who you were made to be. Uh, In the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the, uh, one of the books is about a prince who is under an evil spell and can't remember who he is. Every night, the uh, suppressed information, the, the knowledge he has deep down about who he really is, rises up and tries to come out. And so they tie him into a chair that keeps him from acting on the suppressed knowledge. But one night, he gets hold of his sword and he destroys the chair and then he permanently remembers who he is. David is saying the scripture is that sword The scripture alone is that sword that can destroy the illusions and distortions that keep you from finding out who you really are. So only the scripture can show us how flawed and troubled we are. Only the scripture can can show us just how heinous our sin really is. But simultaneously, only the scripture can show uh, the believer just how loved and valued we are. The scriptures revive the soul. Second phrase, it makes wise the simple. Um, (laughs) Follow me, if you would, on this. Everybody looks back 15 years. You look backwards 15 years. You look at your 15-year-ago self and you think, what a fool I was. What a jerk I was. Uh, your, Your judgment was seriously off 15 years ago. Uh, You're embarrassed at the decisions you made and the views you had 15 years ago. Now, if you're 20 years old today, you were five. That one's pretty obvious. Even if you're 30 today and you look back at your 15 year ago self, you're 15. That's still pretty obvious. I'm in my early 40s. I still feel that way about my mid 20s. I can't believe I knew knew so little about life and about how my own heart works. But if you take this on down the road, do you realize the implications of this? Some of you see where where I'm going. 
your present self is a fool to your 15 year from now self. Your present self is a fool to your 15 year from now self, which means you're a fool now. You're simple now. You're a jerk now. Is there anything we can do about it? Yes. Verse 11. By the scripture, your servant is warned. The fact of the matter is you are doing stuff right now. 15 years from now, you will look back and say, why did I ever do that? Why did I ever say that? What an idiot I was. I hurt myself. I hurt other people. Here's what David's saying. Read the scripture and it'll keep you from doing it now. It makes wise the simple. It'll stop you now. It makes wise the simple. Last verbal phrase I want to point your attention to on the power of scripture. It delights your heart. Look what it says. The precepts of the Lord are right giving joy to the heart. And later it says they are more precious than gold. They are sweeter than honey. These verses and others like it are some of the most mysterious verses in the Psalms, according to C.S. Lewis. He could understand, um, he could understand the scriptures that talk about God's mercies being sweet He could understand the scriptures that talk about God's presence being sweet. He could understand uh, the scriptures that talk about God's promises being sweet. But his commands, his laws, how can anyone say God's judgments are as sweet as honey? And and Lewis, um, in his book on the Psalms, pictures a homeless man starving to death without money in a cafe filled with the smell of freshly baked bread, filled with the smell of freshly brewed coffee, filled with the smell of freshly picked strawberries. And Lewis asks, how could a man in this situation find the prohibition against stealing to be as sweet as honey? And Lewis in reflecting on this says this, this is not scrupulosity. It is the language of a man ravished by a moral beauty. In other words, the one who can look at the laws, demands, the duties that God lays out in his word to us, the one who can look at all those and say, these are as sweet as honey, is someone who has been ravished by moral beauty, who looks at morality and sees it as beautiful as a sunset over an ocean. He looks into the law of God with all its demands and he sees an absolute beauty. And listen, if we cannot find a way to share David's experience, we shall all be the losers. And I would go farther to say that if if we want the scripture to make us wise, if we want the scripture to redo our identity, We've got to let the scripture completely rewire the motivational drive of our hearts. We do not know how to make ourselves obey a set of rules except through coercion and fear. And that's what Lewis is saying is so odd. How in the world can you get your heart to the place where you delight in the law and demands of God? How in the world can you get your heart to embrace the duties of the law as if they are as sweet as honey? 
So what I'm saying is that if, if we don't learn how to do that, if we don't learn how to look at the duties of the law as, and embrace them as being as sweet as honey, if we don't do that, we will never be wise. So how do we do that? Well, the answer is in the third point, the sweetness of Jesus. In the Psalm, all of this reflection brings David to a breaking point in verse 12 when he says, who can discern their own errors? This is a remarkable statement. We have so many sins we're guilty of, we don't even know about. Not because they're so small, we can't spot them, but because they're so natural, we don't notice them. David knows he doesn't measure up. Neither do we. We are more sinful than we think we are. But we have a resource David didn't have. We have an even greater hope. Jesus, the incarnate word of God. So follow me with this. We've been talking about the revelation of God. God disclosing himself. God revealing himself. We have the wordless revelation of God in nature. We have the written revelation of God in scripture. And we have the incarnate revelation of God in Jesus. And there is consistency and alignment with all three. All three have the same genes. The wordless revelation of God in nature, the written revelation of God in scripture, the incarnate revelation of God in Jesus. So the long and short of it is only Jesus can make the scriptures as sweet as honey. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the Old Testament, which means he kept them perfectly. If you want to see what the scriptures lived out look like, study Jesus. If you want to see the law, statutes, uh, precepts, commands, decrees of the Lord lived out, look to Jesus. If the scriptures are the script, Jesus is the movie. But he didn't do this just to put on a show for our entertainment pleasure. His objective wasn't to entertain. His, he accomplished something. He ultimately solved David's problem when David breaks down in confession of sin. We have undetected errors and we need forgiveness. This is the problem David recognized. That is the problem we all have. Jesus solved that problem in the perfect life he lived and the death he died for us. So rather than getting what we deserve for the sins that come so naturally to us in Jesus, we receive mercy, grace, love, and compassion. So the law, statutes, precepts, commands, and decrees of the Lord are not burdensome weight, but rather they become the response to the grace and love lavishly poured out on us in Jesus. They become the means of living into the life of Christ, of participating in the life of Christ. Listen, if, if when you look at the life Jesus lived and you find it intoxicating, compelling, beautiful, mesmerizing, remind yourself the law, statutes, precepts, commands, and decrees of scripture were perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is sweet to you, so too should the scriptures. C.S. Lewis was captivated by how David could consider the demands of God to be as sweet as honey. Lewis said, it is the language of a man ravished by a moral beauty. Indeed, indeed. When you see the connection between the written revelation of God and scripture, 
in the incarnate revelation of God in Christ, we ought all to be ravished by its moral beauty. If the scriptures are the script, Jesus is the movie. And they're both as sweet as honey. Let's pray. Father, we would have never found you had you not disclosed yourself in nature, in your word, and in your son. Stop us in our tracks and help us take notice of the myriad of ways in which you have declared your glory to us. Wake us up to your weightiness. Enliven our souls to taste the sweetness of the scripture and the Jesus who shows us the beauty of a life lived aligned with it. We respond now to your revelation of yourself through worship, obedience, fear, and reverence. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen.